Well, happy Christmas from your friends here at Books of the Year. Yes. Your favorite books podcast. Matt Williams, hello. Hello. Goodness me, How it's good are to you? be back. What are, you, what are you up to these days? Well, I am still stuck in my loft, as indeed I have spent all of 2020 stuck in my loft. And uh, those with a, with a very uh, good uh, listening device will be able to hear the rain pitter-pattering off my loft uh, roof um, because it's raining in North London uh, as we enter Christmas, which I'm overjoyed at. I, re- I remember listening uh, to the kind of clatter coming from your end of this podcast and it was someone cutting the grass back in the summer back in the heyday oh remember the summer everyone before the winter oh wasn't that great yeah you got away with words remember the summer before winter there's <laughs> an autumn i think you'll find that comes oh that's so right oh that's why you've got the five books yeah. if you were uh, yes th- yes that's right yes that's right um if you want to ever get in touch with us, you can tweet us at Books of the Year and you can email booksoftheyearyahoo.com. A bizarre email from Carlos from Podstatus. I don't even know who he is or wow. what that is. Okay. Hope all is well. How's it going? I have some cool information that might interest you. Your podcast, Simon Mayer's Books of the Year, has good performance in some rankings. Right. That makes sense. Position, position 13 in the category of books in Bulgaria. <laughs> so we're... Position number nine in the category of books, United Kingdom. So we're the 13th most popular books podcast in Bulgaria. Wow. The ninth, only the ninth most popular books podcast here. <laughs> the fifth most popular books podcast in Mauritius. In Mauritius? The fourth, yes, the fourth best <laughs> podcast in, in Lithuania in the category of arts. But in the books category in Lithuania, we're at number three. That doesn't make, so, that doesn't make any sense. How can we be fourth in arts? but third in books in Lithuania. Or oh, I suppose if there's a one on ballet in, in Lithuania that's, that's outdoing us, that we, need to, that we need to reel in. Who'd have thought there'd be four more popular books podcasts in Mauritius than this one? Yeah, well, who'd have, who knew that there were eight others ahead of us in this country, which I'm slightly upset about. But uh, So we should say hello to all our Bulgarian, Mar- Mauritian and Lithuanian uh, downloaders and people who've enjoyed this um, this podcast, we, you know, th- thank you very much. It can't make a lot of sense to you, but we appreciate that. Absolutely, yes, we do. And and also, do get in contact with us if you want to be a uh, an official sponsor for this podcast. And that includes, um, we should say, Love Brownies, who got in contact with us. Oh yes. uh, ages at now, that and they sent us some brownies. Oh my goodness, those brownies. I had to sit down. I had one of those and I had to sit down. The chocolate in that brownie off the... Ch- I've had brownies in the past where you could barely taste the chocolate. There was It was packed full. So Love Brownies can be our official uh, chocolate brownie supplier. Very happy. Oh, At Chesford yes. Garden Gin Company, they, they've got a contact. Do, do you need a gin sponsor? Yes, we do. Happy to arrange a copper or a brew no that's tea we don't want that do feel free to send us some gin and you can be our official gin supplier chesford garden yeah because we're not we're not cheap chesford garden gin company when we <laughs> need a sponsor what we mean is we can say today's program is brought to you in association with chesford garden gin when you know you can't buy us just with a glass of gin can you no, can you no. I don't know. well <laughs> three maybe that'll be enough um, so, uh, some of your correspondence about our previous pods, Jackie Connor says, "My, f- this is a reaction to uh, when we were talking about Grace Dent's book, Hungry. 
Oh, yes. Uh, we were talking about old food from the 70s. My favourite was Vesta food, uh, particularly the paella and the beef italienne. You can still get the paella, apparently. Uh, warm memories of Saturday night teas, scampi, chips not frozen, and tinned peas. Do you remember the, the tinned pea? That it, the, uh, what were they called? Was it marrow, marrow fat, fat peas? Marrow fat peas, yes. What is, yes that's right. what, what's the connection between the fat, the marrow fat, and a pea? I don't uh, yes, quite... are they putting the marrow fat into the pea? And that seems a bit convoluted for what is just a pea. And very cumbersome to be injecting every pea with marrow fat. Surely. Is that the same as processed peas? Are processed peas the same as marrow fat peas? Um, yes. Okay, you don't know. <laughs> I, uh, anyway, so uh, Jackie continues. At this stage of the 70s, mixed grills were all the rage. If my dad had made it to the pork butcher, we had oh. slicing sausage. I also made baked Alaska. Angel Delight was a daily thing with a tin of fruit. She was a right one for convenience food, was my mum. Caramac, gold nugget chewing gum, and ice poles. Uh, at this point, I don't know what Jackie's talking about, but <laughs> it, all so- it all sounds great. What have you got? Well, I would I would also say, because obviously that came from uh, Grace Dent's um, uh, uh, podcast, and Grace yes. Dent has been back in contact after we, we... You'll remember that she was having problems with a rat in me kitchen, in the words of UB40. And she uh, replies to say, Hi, thank you for checking in on my domestic misery. The rat is still living with me. He is now named as a joint tenant on the council tax bill. He plans to spend Christmas merrily feasting on the wires on my kitchen spot spotlights and tap dancing loudly in the kitchen every time I cook so that my entire festive season has an anxious Stephen King style atmosphere. Thank you for your concern. Yuletide felicitations to all of you at the pod. Yours, Grace Dent. Uh, The last show uh, that we did, Stranger Times, we had Queeve on the show. Uh, Going to buy Stranger Times, says Steve Jones, as a result of this excellent pod and the Pratchett love. Jeremy Chudley, ending up listening twice, ordered the signed copy from Goldsboro Books. You're costing me a lot of money, all very well spent so far. What else you got there? Yes, Ian Robinson on the, on the Queeve books. I've been buying them for a few years now. I have his Dublin trilogy and I've really enjoyed them. I even once randomly ended up on a museum tour he was also in. But I hadn't read his books at that point, so I didn't say anything. Anyway, I'm really thankful for your latest podcast for firstly drawing my attention to his new book, which sounds great, but possibly more importantly, letting me know how to pronounce his name. Turns out I've been getting it wrong for years, so it's a good job I never said hello. Uh, Jenny Barrett says, uh, Simon, my son has just watched Itch on the BBC iPlayer. All oh, right, this is our this is our uh, Itch. Uh, yes. Did you know it's on iPlayer? Is, is it on iPlayer? I don't. Yes, no one's ever mentioned yes, that. Yes, oh, really? Yes. Oh, that's good. Yes. Anyway, my son loved it. Having never had any interest in science before, he is now asking what elements uh, are made of, which is great. Uh, he also keeps asking when the next series is going to be made. So rather than waiting, I thought I would get him the next book for Christmas. I'm wondering whether the plot in the series aired sticks to book one or covers books one and two. If you've watched the TV series, where does yes. does that cover book one and book two or is it just book one? Just book one, just book one. Uh, so the answer to your question, Jenny, uh, for your son is they've just finished filming series two in, in southwest Australia. Uh, my guess is their series two will be nothing like book two. So book, I think book two and book three of Itch, so Itch Rocks is the second one and Itchcraft is the third one, will go their own merry way, have gone their own merry way. And I think they're just too expensive, like the, in underwater and um, <laughs> and lots of explosions, which are way too dangerous. So yeah. so my hunch is that series one of Itch is pretty close to the, to, to the first book. And then 
Itchrox and Itchcraft do their do their own story, and the TV will do their own thing. So oh, they'll, in other they'll words, do their own thing. Buy the, in other words, buy the book. Yes. Buy, and buy them for your friends. <laughs> yes, buy more than one and, and then spread them around your house. Um, and many thanks to all of you who've been giving us um, five-star reviews on, um, oh, on yeah. Apple Apple Podcasts. Um, and uh, obviously, if you leave us a five-star review, there's a chance we'll, we'll mention you on the podcast. So Nest Builder, you get a mention for saying we're very warming and illuminating. Uh, which is nice. I find that the authors are extremely generous with what they bring to the discussions. So much good stuff said about the creative process of writing and also the fascinating research process. Very illuminating. Who wouldn't light up, though, when talking to Simon and Matt, who are always funny, (laughs) inquisitive, and effortlessly effortlessly sublime. That's me, effortlessly sublime in their tone. It feels like a little lamp is lit when this podcast arrives. So true. Feel free to leave glowing reviews. Um, <laughs> Albeer Mel, uh, I think that's the right name. So just listen to Ben McIntyre uh, with Simon at brackets and eventually Matt because he was yeah. late. Yeah. Another excellent episode about a single book which opens up lots of interesting issues. Who did the KGB learn their spy craft from? I've been inspired to read several books after the great interviews on this podcast. The Q&A extras are often brilliant. This review was sponsored by Janine's Nispero Jam and Laurie McNenemy. Uh, <laughs> McNenemy! Oh. And it finishes off, I've just lent out my signed copy of Mad Blood Stirring Again. What a, yeah. And what a fine gift book that could be. <laughs> that, that could be. But please do buy your own copy. And, and one more uh, review from, from, uh, from Apple Podcasts. Sat Charon says, the problem with this podcast is the number of books that the listener ends up buying because the interviewers are so good they bring out the best in the writers and make every book fact or fiction appealing. It's terrible. Whether in the studio or recording from attic and spur bedroom, this podcast is a joy in turns entertaining and informative, a must for any reader. A must for any reader. That's absolutely right. So please feel free to leave glowing reviews uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Matt, are you ready for the mighty Mr. Rankin who's who's connected with us, I think? Yes, yes, please. Uh, The more we can talk to Ian, the better. So it's the books of the year. It's the last one of the year, um, but we're saving the best till last because Ian Rankin joins us from who knows where. Hello, Ian. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Where Are you at home? I am in my office, which is a one-bedroom flat in central Edinburgh. Right. And uh, are you are you kind of winding down? Um, you know, obviously, we're, we're taking some of your time uh, here. Are you winding down for uh, for the end, you know, for the festivities? Uh, mm-hmm. Not, not so that you would notice. Um, I've got a, having finished, having written a Rebus novel this year, which was then published, which we're going to talk about. I then took on a project of finishing a novel by the great Scottish crime writer Willie McIlvanny, which he had left notes for at his death. And I'm editing that. I'm hoping to get the edits finished before Christmas, but I've not finished them yet. And I'm also occasionally nipping into bookshops, real bookshops, physical bookshops, to sign stock so that my book can keep selling through Christmas. Wow. Which, which we will talk about uh, in just a moment. Just on the Willie McIlvenny, was that, is that, I think all right, that's the first time you've picked, you know, you've continued someone else's work. What, did, what was that like? I mean, it was, it was a challenge. I mean, it was an honour to be asked. At first, his publisher said, look, can you just take a look at these notes and see if you think... There is a full-length novel that can be rescued from them. 
And I looked and I thought, yeah, if you do X and Y and Z and if you move this character and you add this and you do that. And they said, great, will you do it? And, I mean, you know, it was an honor to be asked. And I do want more people to know about his work because he meant a lot to me and I don't want him to suddenly disappear from bookshops and bookshelves. Um, but it was important to me that it be Willie McIlvany's voice, um, his characters, his city, which is Glasgow, um, and his voice. And the biggest compliment I've had so far, and I've had it from several people who've read the manuscript, is that they cannot see the join. They can't see where it stops being William McIlvany and starts to be Ian Rankin. And that, for me, is, is the biggest compliment of all. Oh, okay. So uh, we'll, uh, maybe if we have time, we'll, uh, we'll touch on some of the matters that come out of that. But um, time is tight. And now Matt is going to uh, jump in and describe the cover of the latest Ian Rankin bestseller. Yes. So the sort of format of the of the of the cover is going to look very familiar to people who have uh, read uh, Ian's uh, more recent uh, Rebus books. Um, we have got uh, what is clearly a, a um, seaside scene, but it's a very brooding one. So we've got some seagulls flying across uh, the sort of bottom middle of the cover, and we've got uh, a very distant um, uh, horizon with the, the sea beneath it, and then the dark clouds looming, uh, dominating the top of the cover, Ian Rankin in white, and a song for the dark times in pink. Family comes first, even before the truth. Okay, so a song for the dark times is a fabulous, fabulous title. Um, explain where we are with this, Ian. Explain how Rebus is and the journey that you take us on for this. Uh, well, as the book opens, he is having to move flats because he lives at the moment two flights up, two stories up in a tenement in Edinburgh, and he has COPD, emphysema. He's in his late 60s. He can't manage stairs anymore. So he's very aware of his own mortality. He's aware of time passing. Um, and then he gets a phone call from his daughter, and her partner has gone missing. She lives way up in the north coast of Scotland. So... Being a bit of a bull in a china shop, he jumps into his rusty old Saab and makes the trek north. Um, but straight away, we've got a big question, a big moral question, which is, is he traveling there as a detective or as a father? Um, if he starts to suspect, as the police up there do, that his daughter may have had something to do with her partner's disappearance, will he be a parent and try and clear her name or cover up for her if he starts to think she's done it. Um, or as a detective, if he thinks she's done it, will he try and put her away? And this journey north um, that he takes, Ian, is such a fantastic journey. I've never, I've never done this journey to the north coast uh, of Scotland, but I, I kind of want to do that as soon as we're allowed out and allowed to do uh, long journeys. I want to make this journey. Can you, for those who haven't read the book or made the journey, can you just Describe a little bit about what, where you're taking us. Well, um, yeah, I mean, the, the very far north of Scotland is part of what is now called the North Coast 500, uh, which is a kind of circuit that you can take, uh, a road that you can go around the north of Scotland. A lot of it is is single track with passing places. You've got very lunar scenery, rocky outcrops and things and, and lowering mountains. But also in front of you, you've often got the sea and you've got a spectacular coast white sandy beaches that look as though they could come from the Caribbean, except there's nobody on them and it is Baltic. So as soon as you step out of the car and you're not cocooned, suddenly you're in a very different world. 
And Rebus is a city guy. He's lived most of his life in a city. He suddenly finds himself in a very strange, very strange terrain where he has no contacts, nobody to help him. Um, and so he's kind of making it up as he goes along. And with him, he's got one CD uh, in his car, which his friend and one-time colleague Siobhan Clark has burnt for him because he's a he's a he's a he's like an analog guy in the digital world. He doesn't do downloads or anything. Uh, and on this one CD, she's made it's just lots of songs that he might like, and some that might help him to chill out, and some that might might make him think more about the world. And she's called it. She's written in it in, in Sharpie. Uh, songs for dark times so there's the title of the book uh the, the the least surprising thing i will say about this book uh ian is that i loved it but then you know i anyone who's listened to this podcast knows how how huge a fan i am of the rebus books i i want to talk to you about something that you've you've slightly touched on already which is that this book opens with um rebus having to move flats albeit just down a a floor or so because because he's he's get he's getting older and this this touches on something that um I know you, you, you've always been pretty ruthless about this. I, I remember years ago when, um, uh, when I first started getting into uh, Rebus books, you made it clear that at some, po- at some point this guy is going to retire. This, you know, Rebus lives in the real world and he will not just keep on going for years and years and years. He will retire. And, and, and sure enough, he did. And the good news for, for us readers was that you brought him back to be able to uh, look at cold cases and then be involved in, in other cases beyond that. But it really did feel like a hint here that Rebus is getting old. It's almost like you were waving a flag to us readers, to us fans of Rebus, that this guy is getting old. Get yourselves ready because he will not go on forever. Yeah, I mean, that's been true for a while. I mean, when I start a new book, um, I never know if it's going to be a Rebus novel or not when I'm doing the the initial planning. What I get is a, a theme that I want to explore and then a plot that allows me to explore that theme. And then I say, which character do I need? And often it's been him, not always, but often it has been him. Um, but yeah, he can't go on forever. I can't go on forever. In fact, I can't go on forever because I will die, but fictional characters don't necessarily die. They keep bringing back Sherlock Holmes and Poirot and Miss Marple. They seem to have a life well beyond that of their author. So who knows what's going to happen in the future? There was never any plan uh, per se. So as I sit here, I don't know if there'll be another Rebus novel. I hope I write one more, but I've got no immediate plans to do so. Um, well, is there still anything new to say about them? I mean, a lovely thing with this book was because it involves his daughter and she lives way up the north coast of Scotland, I was getting him out of his comfort zone and taking me out of my comfort zone, which is Edinburgh. Um, and that kept me on my toes. That that, that made me excited um, to write about him. How would he act? He's a real fish out of water in this book because none of, none of the north, far north makes any sense to him when he gets there. Well, in which case, there is something I want to pick up on there from what you've said. And I wonder what the reaction has been from, because this book's been out for a, for a little while, so obviously uh, fans will have read the book. There are plenty of hints of his ageing. And I wonder whether people, when you say, you know, this, I don't know whether I'll write another Rebus book, there'll be fans like me who whose, you know, eyebrows will arch, whose ears will prick up and say, oh, surely not. We, you know, we, we love this guy. You've got to keep on writing him. But, but obviously, as you say, he can't go on forever. And you, and you have been ruthless about this, Ian. You've said, you know, this guy will retire. And at some point, the, you know, age will catch up with him. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things during lockdown was, I mean, this book was mostly written in lockdown, but also during lockdown, I was approached by the National Theatre of Scotland, who said, would you like to write a very short theatrical piece for an actor that would deal with um, COVID and lockdown and everything else? Um, And it was great because fans had been saying, look, how would Rebus with his health problems, how would he deal with lockdown? He'll be having to self-isolate. How's he getting food? How's he coping with that? He's got a dog that he's taken for a walk. Etc. Etc. And so I wrote a eight or ten minute monologue for Rebus, which was able to answer all these questions. And then the National Theatre of Scotland said, "Oh, we've offered it to Brian Cox, um, <laughs> the great Scottish actor um, known for Succession at the moment on TV, and he's going to do it." And he himself wow. was in was self isolating in Upper State New York, so he dressed his cabin to look like an Edinburgh tenement kitchen, and then he did it. And what we get when you see it, you can see it on YouTube and various other places. And what you get is a, a Rebus who is older, who is very aware of his mortality, who's a little bit tired, a bit fatigued, um, and very, very human. And I like that. I like the fact that he's no longer the big macho cop that he was in the early books who would use his size and his heft to intimidate people. Um, he's now a guy in his late 60s and people aren't scared of him anymore. So he's got to use his wiles. He's got to be a little wilier than he was previously. Um, and he is looking over his shoulder and going, what's happened to the world that I knew? It's disappeared. And he's also up against a guy called Cafferty, a gangster who runs Edinburgh, who's going through a very similar trajectory and looking around him and thinking, I've not got much longer at the top. What do I want to do while I still am at the top? And how much longer will I be here? And do I still make a difference to the world? Do I still have a role to play? All these big questions that we all go through as human beings, um, I'm able to do in the books. So it's not just the who done it; it's about this very three-dimensional character. He's very three-dimensional to me, who's going, who's asking himself a lot of the questions that I'm asking myself. You said, I think it's your twenty-fourth uh, Rebus he, that he he grows more interesting, Ian, to you. And having, I was just watching his Dark Materials, you know, Sunday night BBC. Mm television you know the astonishing creations of uh, of philip pullman and and i was thinking rebus is almost like your demon you know he's like he's he's like that extension of you i guess all, all characters are simon you'll know that as well as anybody you know where do these characters come from that we invent they come from our conscious and our subconscious they're part of our personalities we dredge them up from little locked rooms inside our heads. I guess Rebus, to some extent, is my Mr. Hyde. He goes off and has wild adventures while I just sit prim and proper in my office in Edinburgh um, and dream them up and have no adventures at all, you know, live a very sedate and boring life. Uh, but I get to have all these huge adventures inside my head, which is, which is fun. And during lockdown, actually, was an escape tunnel. It was a way of getting away from COVID and getting away from the chaos of the world and Brexit and Trump and everything else. Suddenly, I could sit in my room and create this world that made sense, um, a world that I enjoyed spending time in. And it honestly kept me sane. It kept me sane. And this year, I mean, you know, as I get older, I find I'm not doing as much writing as I used to. It gets harder, not easier. And I, I sort of was reduced to doing a book every two years. Well, this year I've written two already. And I'm actually scratch, I'm scratching my head, thinking I think there might be a third. I might, you know, I might well start a third. Um, wow! So not, maybe not by the end of the year, but certainly early next year, because it's it's just a it's fun and it's an escape and it's a way of not thinking about the the chaos that's around us and creating a world that makes sense and is rational, where things happen the way 
you intend them to happen is a wonderful form of therapy. It's very cathartic. Just a lockdown question, uh, Ian. Uh, it, it sounds like a trite question, but it isn't. Are you, how much are you missing pubs? Oh, hugely, hugely. I mean, my 60th birthday came at the height of the lockdown in Edinburgh. I used my one hour of allowed exercise to walk to the Oxford bar with a can of beer and a glass in my pocket. <laughs> opened it and drank it outside the locked door of the Oxford bar and then walked home. That was my one hour of exercise that wow. day. I wasn't going to let you know a lockdown or a, a pandemic stop me from going to the Oxford bar for my 60th birthday. Um, but yeah, pubs, you know, I think the thing about lockdown is it's, it, lockdown and the virus are changing, will change some of our hard wiring. Some of us will be changed forever. And the notion of going into a very busy pub full of strangers and you're all squeezed up at the bar and you're shouting and you're yelling and laughing and some people just won't want to go back to that but i'm afraid we're going to lose everything that makes us social everything that makes us society is the stuff that makes us socialize us working together being together and you know many of my best nights have been in bars many of the great ideas have been gifted to me in bars people will tell me a story i'll overhear a story i'll come across a character and think i really want to write about you in a story or a book um pubs have been there for me all my life and it's just it's you know it's it's just part of the fabric of my life and it's devastating to have lost that and just yesterday i i, I was out uh with a couple of mates and we did find a bar that was serving takeaway um a pint and a plastic glass so we stood in the street freezing um standing six feet apart obviously uh enjoying one pint but it just wasn't the same no i want to i want to mention music as well uh ian because i mean music always runs through so much of what you write and a song for dark times obviously has it on the cover and it has it on on that cd and that's the other thing uh apart from pubs you know it, that live music experience that has also gone for now and maybe people will get out of that habit yeah I, again it's you know a sweat a sweaty club or a sweaty cellar bar with lots of musicians crammed in and lots of people crammed in with with their drinks uh it's not an attractive proposition for many people. It's going to cease to be an attractive proposition for many people. And I do feel, I mean, as a writer, I can still write, but I do feel for the mu many musicians that I know and comedians and other performers, actors, and people that work in the theatre who, whose livelihoods have just gone. I mean, it's devastating. And, and, you know, they all hope that fans will come back, that people will want to come back to the live experience. Um, but it's been very, very hard, very difficult. I mean, in lockdown, I've listened to a lot of music. Um, I've bought a lot of merch online from musicians. I've streamed a lot of their gigs from living rooms and gigs from the Barbican and all the anything that I can do to help out musicians financially. I've been doing it, but it's not. It doesn't replace going to a live concert. It never can replace it. it can, you can't replace live theatre with streamed theatre. Um, you know, books. God bless them. During lockdown. Writers kept writing, publishers kept finding ways to publish, and bookshops kept finding ways to get the books to readers. I mean, the local independent bookshops in Edinburgh, there's two or three of them that I know of, would cycle the books to you. They'd be put in a little basket at the front of the bike, and it would be cycled and left on your front doorstep if you'd paid over the phone. Um, people just were were just hungry for, for that connection. And to lose yourself in a world, you know, I mean, the, the great, I told you as a writer, I loved losing myself and writing the book, but readers love losing themselves as well. And one of the big bonuses that at the start of this book was I decided to set it because it was, it was begun before COVID came along. Um, 
I decided to set it in the summer of 2019, not the summer of 2020. That would have been a very different investigation. Absolutely. I, it's funny you should, you should mention the um, live music because I was um, there's a band I love, uh, New Model Army, and they always do a um, concert in London just before Christmas. And it's sort of a Christmas tradition that I always go along to this to, to, to this gig. And they obviously this year couldn't do it, so they ended up doing it online. And I watched it, you know, with a pint in my hand. But you're right, it's just it's just not it's just not the same. Um, I want to ask you about Cafferty, who you've you just you sort of touched on um, earlier, Ian. And fans of the book will know who he is. He's a gangster who sort of uh, rules um, uh, Edinburgh in in the Rebus books. And I'm going to be very careful how I phrase this question. But, I mean, the ending to the book is superb. But there is the hint of a reckoning coming for Cafferty. Cafferty is someone who's, uh, as I say, he's, he's a gangster. And uh, sometimes he's he's been there sort of helping um, Rebus. But uh, we're, we're left in no doubt this is a bad guy. But it, but it felt to me like there is a reckoning coming. Would I be right? I, I, Matt, honestly, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I like a, I like an open ending. I don't like everything being tied up at the very end. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a very it is a very open ending, and there is some uncertainty over at least one of the main characters in the series. Um, I don't know how that's going to resolve. I mean, I've got I've got a couple of different types of books that are going to be published before I have to sit back and think if I've got another Rebus slash Cafferty book left in me and what that book might involve. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's you know there's never been a plan. It's not like a, a thought, you know. Oh, I think in in three books time this will happen, and in four books time they'll take over. In this book, when I started it, I mean, I had this sto- the story up north, which revolves around internment camps in World War Two, because I was very interested in that as a corollary for things I saw happening in the real world in 2019 and the way the world seemed to be moving. Um, and I had that story, so it was set up north with Rebus, and that was fine. But then I thought, oh, do I need an Edinburgh story? Do I need something for Siobhan Clark and Malcolm Fox, my serving detectives, to be doing? Is there a role for Cafferty, although he's in Edinburgh and Rebus is mostly up north? Um, and I just began to tease out another plot, another story, that, again, I thought said a little bit about the way the world could be going. Um and suddenly then I had an Edinburgh bit and suddenly I had something for Cafferty to do and for Siobhan Clark and Malcolm Fox to do. And that just happens organically. It isn't plotted beforehand or planned beforehand. It's just that at some point early on in the process, the book told me um, that it, it would quite like that to happen. Thank you very much. Can you just make that happen? <laughs> and, and, you know, at the same time, I had no idea what had happened to um, Rebus's daughter's partner you know, had they been done away with? Had he gone missing for some reason? Was it connected to his work at a nuclear power station? Um, uh, I, I wasn't absolutely sure um, what had happened to him or and if anything had happened to him, who might have been responsible. I, I love that. I just love flying by the seat of my pants. As as Matt's mentioned, Ian, you know, you, you've written lots. I mean, the real world is always part of uh, of the Rebus books, and you've written about police reforms and retirement age and Scottish independence and Brexit and so on. But this this book does feel like, and I know other people have used this phrase, state of the nation novel, but it does feel like that to me. Does it, it, it is that a curse to, to have that put on it? I don't know. That's how it felt. Yeah, I, well, the problem with a state of the nation novel is it can get very old very quickly when the nation moves on or when history moves on, when events move on. Um, I mean, I wrote a novel about the G8 when the G8 came to Scotland. Um, 
And in some ways that got old very quickly. Young readers would come to that book now and go, what is all this stuff with the GA? Who are the GA? And um, and then when real life came along, we had the, the 7-7 bombing in London. Well, that was the same week as the G8, so there was no way I couldn't mention it in the book. So suddenly the book had to take on board the bombings in London, uh, which I didn't want it to, but it had to because that's the week the book was set. So it's a double-edged sword um, when you bring the real world in and you bring in real time. In this book, I mean, it started off with it started off with me being interested in these internment camps. These were camps that we opened up at the start of World War II. And we decided to put everybody in there who might be uh, our enemy. And these were the people who ran the local shop, who had a German surname, the ice cream guy who was from Italy, um, people with kind of Chinese or Japanese surnames who, who had lived near us or amongst us for, for decades. They, a lot of them were just locked up. Um, the Isle of Man became a floating prison camp. There were, and there were over a thousand of these camps spread throughout the UK. And as I was reading up on them, I just thought, we're kind of one step away from that happening again. And I think maybe it was partly a reaction to Brexit. We're being told that our one-time allies and friends are now the enemy, that it's us and them. It's very binary. Politics has become very binary. There's no middle ground. There's no nuance. There's no space for debate. And certainly that's true online. Um, And I also saw the rise of the far right in some countries and cultures, especially in Eastern Europe. Um, we had Brexit happening. It was all getting a bit chaotic and tense. We had Trump in the White House. There was a lot of tension in America. There were kind of demonstrations on the streets with wildfires burning from everywhere from California to Australia. I thought the world is in a mess, a complete and utter mess. And then I came across this quote from Bertolt Brecht, the, um, the playwright, um, you know, when the dark times come, will there still be songs? Yes, there will be songs about the dark times. And so with no COVID in sight, I thought this is a dark time and I'm going to write about it. And by using the internment camps, something that happened in the 1940s, it meant I could get some distance, some objectivity, so that I wasn't standing in a pulpit or standing on a soapbox and wagging my finger at the reader uh, it was a little bit more nuanced than that. We were talking about events that had happened, you know, 70, 80 years ago. Um, and I was using them as a way for the reader to maybe think a little bit about now, but without really spelling it out. Um, we had Lee Child on the podcast, uh, well, it was a few weeks ago. And of course, he features in your in your <laughs> book. Um, and, he, and he told us the story behind that about him uh, bidding to, to, to get his name included in the book at, a, at an auction. I, I want to ask you, though, about um, something you said more recently, because he's been involved in the Man Booker Prize. And he he made the point that he doesn't feel that, um, and he, he mentioned you by name, but books like his and books like yours don't get the recognition that they deserve. And it's something I wholeheartedly agree with I, I you know you I, I read a lot in newspapers uh in the at this time of the year they they tend to come up with a sort of list of you know books that you need to read this this Christmas mm-hmm. or books that you needed to read in 2020 and I you know I run out of the number of political biographies that get mentioned in that list despite the fact that very few people read them and yet books that are close to my heart like uh, you know thrillers detective fiction sport books even they don't they don't seem to get a mention they, they seem to be sort of looked down upon is is that something you're conscious of Ian? I, I think I used to be more conscious of it than I am now I mean I feel sorry for sci-fi and fantasy writers and people who write romantic fiction women's fiction whatever you want to call it there's you know historical fiction they all get ignored as well 
and they get ignored more than the crime writers. Crime writers are actually getting more attention now than ever before. I mean, I'll give you a, a concrete example of that. Denise Miner, um, her latest book has just been shortlisted for the um, the Costa. And I, I looked back, and I think it's the first crime novel that's ever been shortlisted for the best novel prize uh, by the Costa. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of booker. It's, all, it's bookerish. It's like it's that kind of prize. And so for commercial fiction, a crime novel, a thriller to be in that position, I think, is a is a is, is a major event um, for all of us who spend our lives, you know, trying to make sure our books are as relevant, as good, as literate, um, uh, as thematically deep, full of interests and characters as we can make them. I mean, that's what crime writers, it's all we can do. All we can do is keep taking on big themes. But I'll, I'll tell you that if I want to know about the way the world is, the whether it's political shenanigans or whether it's the state of society, the problems we've got in society or any culture around the world, if I want to know about that, I will go to the crime fiction and the thriller. I won't necessarily go to the political biographies or the literary, the highfalutin literary novels. Um, and you know, you'll find out a lot. You'll you'll get a kind of you'll get a text. You'll get almost like a textbook of what this country or this culture is like, what the people are like, and what what they're going through at the moment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And at the same time, taking on big moral questions that are that have been with us since the beginning of literature. Big moral questions of good and evil. Why good people do bad things. Um, and yeah, I mean, crime fiction deals with the fears of its contemporary audience, which is why. In Denise's last uh, couple of books, she's taken on the, things like the online world or true crime podcasts, stuff like that, um, as, as, a, as a you know, as a kind of motivating force for her stories because she looks around and sees that's what people are interested in and that's what's kind of pushing the narrative at the moment. Sort of related to that, uh, Ian uh, John Le Carre passed recently, mm. um, and the way he was, and obviously there's been. Uh, a lot written about that, a lot of appreciation from from his fans and from from writers all over all over the world. But on the Radio Four News Bulletin, it was announced as that I forget whether he was introduced as the the spy writer or the espionage writer, instead of just writer. I mean, what an extraordinary writer and observer of humanity and writer of big themes. And so, yes, it was about there were there were spies in there, but it was almost like he had even in the writing of the bulletin, he had to be. I don't know. I just don't know why they had to put in the word espionage or spy in there. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think if if he had allowed his books to go forward for prizes, I think he always said to his publisher he'd stipulated he didn't want his books put forward for any prizes. Uh, I think he probably would have won a booker at some point, or he certainly would have been shortlisted for it more than once. I mean, he was a great writer, you're right. I met him once incredibly briefly when I was 28. I'd not long arrived in London and he was getting the Diamond Dagger. I say he never went in for prizes, but when he was offered the Diamond Dagger Lifetime Achievement Award by the Crime Writers Association, he said, yes, I'll accept that. And the reception was at the House of Lords, and I'd never been to the House of Lords. I was 28. I was a journalist. I thought, yes, he's great. So I wrote a check, and I, as a member of the Crime Writers Association, and along I went. I published, I think, two books. And I had the invitation with me, which was a kind of lovely gold embossed card. And I went up to him at the reception and said, I'm collecting signatures of all the writers here as a kind of memento, would you sign this for me, please? This was a lie. This was me using tradecraft, spycraft. <laughs> the only signature I wanted on that card was his. Um, but because he was standing with a couple of other writers, I had to get their signatures as well, obviously. But um, And that was the only time I ever met him. He had no idea who I was, obviously. Uh, not, not, not a clue. 
But, you know, I, last year I tried inviting them to the Harrogate Crime Fiction Festival. I wanted them to come along and be interviewed about the spy novel, um, possibly putting them on with someone like um, Mick Heron, um, you know, who keeps the fire burning of, of espionage fiction. Um, but he, he's, he turned it down. Um, possibly for obvious reasons now. But yeah, he was a great writer. He was a great, in, in, the, in the manner of Graham Greene, he wrote entertainments that were incredibly serious. Mm. And there was also something of Dickens about him. I think the, the A Perfect Spy, which is my favourite book of his, there's quite a lot of Dickens in the the, the ornate characterization of the, the spy's father, who of course was very closely based on Lecari's own father, who was a con man, a very... An exceptionally gifted con man, and and Licari had grown up with that figure, um, and you start to see where uh, the subterfuge, the interest in subterfuge, and people pretending to be what they're not, you start to see where that all came from. Just a final question, uh, Ian, about a song for the dark times. You say um, in the acknowledgements uh, at the end, you thank your wife Miranda, your first reader and most telling reviewer. Mm. What did? Do you remember what she said about this book? Um, yeah, I, I print it off, usually second or third draft. I print it off and I hand her the manuscript and she goes through it and writes in the margins. Um, there'll be clunky sentences, things where I am telling, not showing. She'll often, well, not in this book so much, but in previous books, she'll say, why has Rebus not gone home and fed the dog for the last six hours? Um, if he's <laughs> going to go to this part of town, couldn't you take the dog with him and take the dog for a walk? Because I made the mistake of giving Rebus a dog. Never worked with children and animals. I made the mistake of giving Rebus a dog a few books ago, and it's been the bane of my life ever since. Um, so, yeah, stuff like that. I mean, she, but more recently, she read this uh, Willie McIlvany manu, manu, manuscript, and, you know, she, that I've been working on, and she said she couldn't see where it had ceased to be his voice and start to be mine, and I just was so flattered by that, because it was important to me that it be, it be his story and it be his voice, not mine. So it is really is an act of ventriloquism. But yeah, if Miranda doesn't like it, it gets fixed before it goes to the publisher is the bottom line. Uh, Ian Rankin's latest book is A Song for the Dark Times. Uh, Ian, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. What's Christmas like at your place, by the way? If we were going to come and spend Christmas with you, what would it be like? Oh, it's difficult this year. I mean, usually the mother-in-law comes from Belfast and, and my wife's uh, brother brings her. So the two of them stay with us most years. But of course, that's not happening this year. She's very wary of traveling, um, even if, if even if it was allowed, which I'm not sure it will be. So it was only going to be the two of us, me and my wife, plus our son, Jack, because um, our other son, Kit, who's got severe disabilities, has been in lockdown since March. We've barely seen him since March. But in fact, they've just changed the rules and the place where he lives have said, look, he could come home for a, for a night or two um, uh, if you want. And so we're, we're wrestling with that. But again, from day to day, we, we don't know, Simon. I mean, at the moment, it's looking okay. like the first minister in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, is saying you really shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't have people coming and staying overnight in your home. So um, we, we're waiting to hear from the the where the care home where he lives, we're waiting to hear if they're going to change their advice and maybe say, no, you know what, we'll just keep him here and you can come and see him through the gate or over the wall, which is mostly what we've been doing since March. It's just with that distance between us. So not able to give him a hug. I mean, if he came home, at least we could sit on the sofa with him, open some of his presents and give him a big hug. But that might not be possible. Yeah. If it isn't possible, I've got strong drink. Uh, quite a lot of it. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, 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 Ian, thank you, thank you so much, and we wish you a happy Christmas and uh, and, uh, and an exciting and healthy 
2021. Thank you. Are we done, or have I got to do this list of things I've got here? No, you Last don't. Book yeah. enjoy <laughs> I know. I'm. We get. That's a separate bit. That's a separate bit. Cool. Make it sound I, like such a I, trial. Anyway, no, okay. No, I, so, was just, I was just checking, if, mate. I was just going to go. Cheerio. I'm off. All right. All right. So the Q and A podcast will be available shortly. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.